0: Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I'm your other host, Timothy Deal. And we're going back to the future. We're in 1993. 1993 uh, is within our childhoods, Nick. I know. We're like, we were alive. I think I may have seen our movie at some point when it came out. Maybe not. Would you have gone to the theater to see a romantic comedy? I don't know. I have no idea. No. i I'd see it. We'll talk about that later. But anyways, the movie this episode is Sleepless in Seattle.
1: Yeah, I don't think I went to the theater a whole lot this eight year, my period of my life. At least our family didn't go to the theaters I, a lot. See,
0: right before this, like 92, I remember watching Jurassic Park, Aladdin. Jurassic Park would have been this year. This year. Okay. Well, I saw a number of movies around the early 90s. Okay. Yeah. Anyways. We're in nineteen ninety-three, but Tim, we're not here to talk about what I watched. We're talking about movie history. So what's going on in nineteen ninety-three? It will be completely
1: well to recap from last season when we discussed the nineties, particularly in nineteen ninety-two. Uh, we talked about that we are definitely in what's called either the contemporary era or the blockbuster age. Definitely a bigger focus on, if you look at the top 10 films of the year, Mass Appeal, mm-hmm. then there's a lot of that. That being said, I, I do feel like there's a difference in the types of movies that the blockbusters are in this period than, say, 10
0: years later. Yeah, they, they seem to have more variety yeah. and different styles, and we've kind of gravitated to a certain big picture kind of action adventure kind
1: of stuff yeah, but yeah. like if you look at the top 10 of this year you'll 1993 you'll see all kinds of illegal dramas. Some, like, Schindler's List was this year, and that's on the top ten. It was an exciting time. I mean, growing up, it was an exciting time. There's just seemed like there were always good movies on. Yeah, it would seem so. We also talked back last season, near 1992, about there was a new crop of indie filmmakers that were coming out. So even while they were doing these big blockbuster stuff, there were some indie filmmakers in the late 80s, early 90s, like Spike Lee, Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez. And that we're finding success, thanks partly to declining production costs and the VHS market, which is booming now. Yes, yes, I
0: remember. We just had VHSs everywhere, and still at my parents' house, tons of them. Yeah, <laughs> they still have. Yeah, I believe it. They've they probably never have never changed their shelves. Nope, since nope. And over I think 20 years. I think there's a VHS player maybe still there. A VCR, you mean? Yes, thank you. <laughs> yes,
1: VCR. Very but uh, moving on to some things that we haven't talked about or we didn't talk about as much last season, we've been talking more about film exhibition, the theater business lately. We are in a period that's marking the beginning of the boom of multiplexes. Mm-hmm. From 1988 to 2000, the number of screens in the United States exploded from roughly 23,000 to 37,000. That's a big increase. Yeah, that's that's a quote from uh, Wikipedia. Uh, however, except Expansion of multiplexes also concentrated the market with the top 10 exhibitors controlling 47 of the nation's screens compared to 27% in 1986. So the big companies are the ones that are making most of these multiplexes. Okay, that makes sense. And that's according to a 1994 Variety article. Okay we'll talk about this again next episode the, there's a little bit of a backlash is in the 90s it went from multiplexes to megaplexes uh <laughs> with stadium seating and uh that kind of created a bit of a bubble but we'll talk about that some more next time
0: but this episode is a romantic comedy. We've got a romantic comedy coming so we up. So we're going to do a, sketch, uh, a thumbnail sketch of romantic comedies for us, right, Tim? Uh, we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> um,
1: if you ever listen to our other podcast, Old Trains of Thoughts, where we talk about all manner of we've covered romantic I, I comedies. I was going
0: to do for the creator and the consumer. He didn't even give me time. Oh, sorry. Anyway, go
1: ahead. <laughs> all manner of storytelling For the creator and the consumer. There you go. Uh, we, we covered romantic comedies just earlier this year. Uh, my sister Danielle was a guest on that. But let's talk a little bit more hone in a little bit more on some of the history yeah I mean romantic romance and comedies have gone hand to hand in storytelling as far back as Greek theater or Shakespeare mm-hmm. in film, we've seen the pairing as far back this season even as from Mabel's new hero, yes,
0: a short version, but still that comedic. Romance.
1: The the interplay between a man and a woman and the bumbling nature of some of relationship troubles. Yes.
0: In a very slapstick manner in that film. That was more comedy than romance, but yes. you have the whole uh, continuum.
1: Yeah, exactly. Some films, the romantic comedy is just kind of an ingredient. Sometimes it's the main focus. Mm-hmm. Even as far back as, again, Charlie Chaplin has a film called City Lights from 1931 that a lot of people consider the romance just as important as the comedy oh, in that nice. particular one. But I did want to touch on a couple subgenres that seem to really develop at certain periods of American history in regard to uh, changing cultural norms. So the screwball comedy is a genre that was became popular during the Hays Code era of 1930s and 40s. Since I was more restrictive on the sort of things you could do the screwball comedy, uh, I'll just read the description here from uh, Wikipedia. What sets the screwball comedy apart from the generic romantic comedy is that screwball comedy puts the emphasis on a funny spoofing of love, while the more traditional romantic comedy ultimately accents love. So, other elements of the screwball comedy include fast paced, overlapping repartee, farcical situations, escapist themes, physical battle of the sexes, disguise and masquerade, and plot lines involving courtship and marriage. And they do have a quote in there from an author, Wes Gehrig, who wrote a book called Romantic versus Screwball Comedy, charting the difference.
0: Okay, so what would me a good example of a screwball comedy? Bringing up Baby is one they mention. Uh, because like some of the ways you mentioned it, that's almost like much to do about nothing. I wouldn't call it quite screwball, but it has still some of those elements. So. Yeah, it probably is inspired in part by that sort of stuff. Um, the masquerade, the fast moving, the, you know, the ridiculous situations. Yeah,
1: and sometimes you would see these in things that are outside of what we would call just a romantic comedy. Yeah. Um, but it's very fun, when, especially when you have like a woman who's kind of pushing the man into situations he doesn't want to be in. And in that sense, uh, they say it's kind of challenging his masculinity, challenging okay. his leadership kind of stuff. So, yeah, some other e- examples, again, this was popular 30s and 40s in movies like Bringing Up Baby, The Philadelphia Story, the original Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I'm trying to see, look through your list here, see ones that you might be more familiar with. Well, Runaway Bride
0: okay. is, is one basically from the 90s,
1: just, they say.
0: Basically, you just it's a romantic comedy, but like the situation's just over the top. Yeah. Even, and, and a little more manic or a lot more antics. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a good way to describe it. Another particular period, the
1: career woman comedy. This was exemplified by Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy movies of the post-World War II period. Okay. We just come out of the war when a lot of women had been, had gone into... And they were working and doing all the work. work, Into the career, into the work industry. And so now they had new ideas about that. And so you have this bit of... uh, And the Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy movies, they're often playing married couples, but there's some sort of internal strife regarding her working and her ideas and, you know, Again, the battle of the sexes. Yeah, thing.
0: Yeah, because how do we adjust to this new culture with our different roles? Yeah, pretty yeah.
1: much. Then... Wikipedia says that there's another genre called the sex comedy that is first hinted at in the pre-sexual revolution of the late 1950s into the 1960s with movies featuring Doris Day, Marilyn Monroe, Rock Hudson, and or Tony Curtis. This kind of thing would be have a lot of stories with is heavily implied that the man is trying to bed the woman, mm-hmm. but winds up falling in love with her instead. Okay. So that's kind it of is. a will they or won't they sort of situation. Of course, that would become much more explicit in the 1970s and beyond, yeah. with movies like Animal House, and in the 90s, there's something about Mary or something. All these kind of much more extreme. American Pie, mm-hmm. a lot it, of teen sex movies come yeah. from this, this sort of idea. Not the sort of thing we condone, but it's worth noting. Our modern conception of rom-coms a lot of commentators consider began in 1989 with When Harry Met Sally. These kind of rom-coms that focus more on the challenges of dating, starting from the meet-cutes, the misunderstandings, the romantic conflicts, to the reunion and they finally get together and are happily ever after.
0: It's all built around that tension of, like, well, usually, like, the girl's in love with someone else or thinks she is and they meet this have the meet cute and like okay how do we deal with our weird differences and, and
1: they may have they may not actually like each other at first normally but they, they don't yeah <laughs> but there's something there's just something there and i watched a vanity fair video on youtube about uh, whether romantic comedies are dying yeah and they said another f- common feature with these are the um like the chance meeting that mm-hmm. the meet cute is kind of comes about by chance and so it's it's even cuter because of that it's Like, it's almost like it was fate. Yes. Which that's- Which is a big theme coming up here. Which is a big theme for this particular one. So those are, uh, again, those are just kind of some trends. It'd be impossible to do, a, and for this podcast, to do a complete overview of romantic comedies and films. It'd be a whole season. Yeah. <laughs> again, it's an ingredient in a lot of things. Last season, we talked about Singing in the Rain. It had some romantic comedy elements. Yeah. But it, is it just a romantic comedy? Well, probably its main feature is a musical. Musical, yeah.
0: But anyway, so there is an overview of romantic comedies and film. So it's 1993. See Bliss in Seattle comes out, but what other important movies are coming out in 93? Well, we mentioned Jurassic Park a little yeah, while which ago. Which I don't know why I was 92, but you're right, 93.
1: And it is the top grossing film of the year. In fact, it made 914 million, breaking the box office records to become the highest grossing film ever made to that time. The Oscar... Why didn't we
0: put that one on this list? Oh, well, we've all seen it. <laughs> yes, of course. We've all seen Jurassic Park. It's so Park. good, though. <laughs>
1: Oscar winners, the best picture of the year that went to Schindler's List, understandably so. Steve that, was, was
0: a, that was a Spielberg year. He made the most money and got... <laughs> yeah, Jurassic Journey Park
1: War. and Schindler's List, two radically different movies. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I think, I don't remember which
0: came before the other, but it was... I want to say, it seems like I heard a story that Jurassic Park 2 was kind of his palate cleanser after Schindler's List. Oh, the second one? The second one. So I think okay. it might have been Jurassic Park,
1: Schindler's List. That makes... Okay, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Um, Of course, Steven Spielberg won Best Director for Schindler's List as well. I think that was his first Best Director win, actually. Hmm. Best Actor went to Tom Hanks for Philadelphia. So this is a good year for Tom Hanks, too. And Best Actress went to Holly Hunter for The Piano. Holly Hunter I know know best as the voice of Mrs. Incredible. Okay, yep. So (laughs) maybe I should see The Piano sometime. I don't know. (laughs) My other nominations for this week's episode were Philadelphia because it is a considered sort of a landmark film in the in the film community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always been a little hesitant because I know it's about... Tom Hanks plays a gay man in there yeah. that is suing about being discriminated against for having AIDS. Okay. So important movie in some ways, but probably one that we would have some issues with. Mm-hmm. My other nomination for this week's episode was Tombstone, partly just because that's the movie I thought was Unforgiven last season. <laughs> so I figured it'd be good to throw yes. out a <laughs> little acknowledgement But this we time. had Shane, so. Yeah, exactly. We already did mm-hmm. a Western. Some other notable events. <laughs> I love year. this verse <laughs> Some other notable events this year in 1993 on May 28th marked the release of the first movie adapted from a video game, Super Mario Brothers. Unfortunately, as many of you may know, it was a critical and financial failure. It was so, it was so disappointing going to see that movie. <laughs> it it deserved to fail. Yeah. Which is kind of funny. I'm not sure. I'd seen it pointed out that that movie came out exactly 30 years before the actual successful Mario Brothers movie came out this year. That's a long time. It took them a long time to get it right, probably because Nintendo got scared off for a well, while. Well, understandably. Yeah. But this year, 1993, also marked the film debuts of Jennifer Aniston, John Favreau, Terrence Howard, Ryan Reynolds, Chris Tucker, Renee Zellweger, and many more. So if you would like the full list, go check out 1993 in Film on Wikipedia.
0: You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things... A plug, as time goes by. So that's 1993, and we were watching Sleepless in Seattle. So what is this movie about? Well, this
1: movie, Sleepless in Seattle, was directed by Nora Ephron, and it stars Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, with a cast that also includes Bill Pullman and Rob Reiner. This romantic comedy begins at the funeral of Maggie Baldwin, wife to Chicago architect Sam, played by Tom Hanks, and mother of their 8-year-old son, Jonah. Since staying in Chicago feels too painful to Sam, he and his son move to Seattle, where they continue to have trouble finding healing for over a year. Meanwhile, about this time, a year later, Baltimore Sun reporter Annie Reed announces her engagement to her boyfriend, Walter, but starts having second thoughts, seemingly wondering at the lack of magic in their relationship. While driving home, Annie hears Jonah on the radio, who has phoned into a national show seeking help for his dad, who has yet to date anyone. Sam reluctantly also talks to the radio host, expressing how much he misses his departed wife. Sam's story touches millions of women listeners, including Annie, who finds herself continually thinking about Sam's story over the next several days. The audience is given many clues that Sam and Annie would be perfect for each other, but given that they live on opposite sides of the country, will they ever find that out? This is a color film. It is uh, has a screen ratio of 1.85 over 1. It's very close to 16 by 9. The length is 105 minutes, so that's about an hour and 45 minutes. It is rated PG. The screenplay is by Nora Ephron, the director, as well as David S. Ward, who is a screenwriter for The Sting. It's very interesting. Which you watched earlier this season. And Jeff Ark, who came up with and wrote the original script. He was the one who first made the first version of the script. And, and they changed things up. Yeah, yeah. He was a new screenwriter, so they gave it to someone who was a little bit more accomplished, David Ward, who did his own version. And then Nor Ephron, who was noted for being a screenwriter first. This is actually only her second film that she directed. Okay she came in at her own touch although she also took suggestions from tom hanks who had wanted to do something different with his character oh interesting he he brought in he brought in a good perspective to it the score is a contemporary score by mark shyman with several pop songs that invoke classic romance from such singers as jimmy Durante, louis armstrong nat king cole and gene autry and the soundtrack did pretty well on the music Sharps, topping the
0: Billboard 200 at its peak. You it did have a good variety of those sort of pop, peppy songs.
1: Yeah, it has a kind of a timeless feel to it, it. Does. and it feels a little, uh, a lot of like classic songs in there. But it makes it feel kind of old-fashioned, or but not super old-fashioned, but just like classic.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. It, it holds up well.
1: Give me a kiss before you leave me, and my imagination will feed my hungry heart.
0: All right. So it came out. Who cared? Was it well known when it uh, came out? Uh, It did very well financially, actually. Despite
1: opening as an underdog in a crowded summer movie season, it became a surprise hit, ranking as the eighth highest grossing film of the year at over $227 million worldwide. And it's also the 21st highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. Nice. And uh, most critics were game to go along with it. Peter Travers from Rolling Stone magazine called it the hippest, frankest, and funniest date movie around. Our old friend Roger Ebert at the Chicago Sun-Times said that it was as ephemeral as a talk show, as contrived as the late show, and yet so warm and gentle, I smiled the whole way through. And Vincent Canby of the New York Times said, It's a stunt, but it's a stunt that works far more effectively than anybody in his right mind has reason to expect. Which, given its uh, its history and getting made from this, like a lot of people turned down the screenplay at first, but then like some producer was like, I think we can make something of this. And they had to do a couple okay. of passes at it. You know, that, that makes sense. They, it was, they,
0: they, made, they made it work.
1: They made a, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. They made a yeah. tough concept work. It currently has a 75% tomato meter rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 61 reviews. So not as glowing as some of our other movies from the season, but That's 75% true. ain't bad. And it received two Academy Award nominations, Best Original Screenplay and Original Song, though it won neither. All right.
0: So it's been 30 years since this came out. So uh, has it made any difference or legacy in those 30 years?
1: Well, there was a musical adaptation that premiered in Broadway around Broadway in May of 2013. Interesting, I, I didn't know
0: that. I, it would fit well as a musical adaptation. It
1: would. It would. I don't think it made uh, much headway. It's a, not a big presence, but yeah. it, you know, it did. They did try that out. It was a boon for the careers of Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, and Nora Ephron. I know Tom Hanks in particular. He was looking to kind of. He was getting a little tired of playing like the goofy comedian, yeah. com- comic side. And this this role had a little bit more depth. It, I mean, the heartfeltness to it. The heartfeltness. And also, I think in some ways, important mm-hmm. that this movie came out in the same year that Philadelphia did and that he was playing a gay man, a minority in that movie. In this movie, he's much more of an everyman. He yes. kind of established himself like a year before Forrest Gump really established <laughs> himself as a Hollywood everyman. Yes. And again, Meg Ryan, she was previously in a movie that Nora Ephron wrote when Harry met Sally. But this was like kind of really solidified her as America's sweetheart. Mm -hmm. As they say, like, you know, if you're in one hit movie, it could be a fluke. But if you're in multiple, you're a movie star. And as far as Nora Ephron, like, this is considered the middle of three iconic films that she wrote that really breathed new life into romantic comedies. And it was a big genre throughout the 90s. Mm-hmm. As we've talked it really about. was, yeah. And uh, the other two, again, being When Harry Met Sally and You've Got Mail, which would reunite Hanks and Ryan. And this movie is also credited with, and this is kind of interesting, introducing Americans to Tiramisu, which was a relatively obscure dessert before 1993. Yeah, there's
0: a whole scene where they're talking about, like, well, what are you talking about, Tiramisu? Yeah, what is this stuff?
1: Tiramisu. What is Tiramisu? You'll find out. What is it? You'll see. Some woman is going to want me to do it to her, and I'm not going to know what it is. You'll love it. Oh, this is going to be tough.
0: All right, and uh, who else cares? Is this on any of our favorite lists?
1: Well, our good old friends at American Film Institutes, they put it on two of their lists. It's on the 100 Passions, ranked at number 45. And when they did their 10 top 10 list, one of their many lists was on 10 romantic comedies. And this barely made it on that list at number 10. So that's a lot of romantic comedies to fight against, actually. That is. It's true. Rotten Tomatoes also ranked it the 53rd best blockbuster of the 1990s. And several websites include it in their list of best romantic comedies, including CinemaBlend, Screen Rants, and Collider. All right. So no...
0: Um, no film registry yes. this
1: time, surprisingly. I yes. did double check that, but, uh, <laughs> you know,
0: I'm sure it's just a matter of time. Be probably. So that was what other people were thinking, how people reacted, and it kind of grew over the years. But what do we think about this? So had you seen this movie beforehand? I had not. Well, I had seen the ending of it, strangely
1: Mm -hmm. enough. I think for church, we used it as a sermon illustration at some point. Probably not really supposed to use the ending of a movie. They probably figured the Statue of Limitations was right up
0: on it. But uh, no, I had not seen this before. I think I had the opposite issue that I had, which I have doubt, where I thought I hadn't seen it and I had. I thought I'd seen this, but as I watched it, I'm not sure I had. It might have just been one of those things that was like, Around so much that I thought I'd seen it, mm-hmm. or I don't remember much of it. because I watched it when I was young and didn't care. Yeah, like one of the two. I don't know which.
1: I do think it's a little curious in other ways. The ending was the only thing I had ever seen of it. Really, like I don't think I'd seen it like excerpted or like. I'm sure you know. I lived in a house with four sisters yeah. and mom and a grandma. I'm sure they watched it at some point, but I probably just dismissed it as a chick flick and yeah. checked out and went in another room and
0: watched Indiana Jones again or something. <laughs> for being as well-known as, I mean, I knew about it, and I, I was pretty sure I'd seen it, but watching it, I'm like, maybe I haven't, but it just, I lived through that time period, and it was just a big deal when it came out, so.
1: I do know that even if they watched it, it was, it was probably not my sister's or mom's favorite yeah. romantic comedy, and I can kind of see why having watched it, even though I enjoyed a part of it, but let's, let's it uh, hold that. on for that for now. So
0: let's see our uh, instant reaction from having watched it last week.
1: I think it's just as well. I did not watch this when I was in my 20s because I feel like it would have just annoyed me at that time (laughs) uh, um, for chick flicky kind of reasons about like, oh, you're fated to love a certain person and Meg Ryan's stalkerish behavior. But at this age, at least I can appreciate there's a lot of clever dialogue here. It has a lot of the pros and cons of being a romantic comedy. So Nick, you've seen this before. What'd you think?
0: Well, yeah, nominally I've seen it before though. I couldn't remember now having seen it. But I, I agree. Like some of the writing's great. There's some really good dialogue and witty scenes. But I think like a lot of the strengths are good strengths for romantic comedies, and it has the same idiosyncrasies and I guess I don't know flaws and or um, weak points as romantic comedies normally have. Right. I guess we'll talk about more of that. But yeah, it seems like it was a good representation of the genre. But it's the genre. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I was surprised. I did see this probably as a teenager or in my 20s, one of my most cynical
0: periods, and I had probably about that reaction. Now as an adult, I understand a lot more of the humor that happened throughout the movie. I want to use the term suspension of disbelief to think about the, the premise of the entire story. I couldn't then and still can't now quite suspend my disbelief to the extent that the story asks to, but on the other hand, I I appreciated, surprisingly, I found myself appreciating how Annie questions herself. She knows she's getting swept away and she knows how ridiculous she is. That's a step better than just getting swept away and not even observing it.
1: I don't think I had seen this before. I wasn't sure what to expect, so... I was surprised, I guess, by the um, the premise the whole thing's built on, which seemed kind of sad for a romantic comedy. I mean, I, I kind of felt bad for the kid, especially, to have lost his mom from a mom's perspective. I'm with Janelle. I, I'm not sure I can buy the, the romantic premise that and the two of them just... It's fate, or whatever it is that's bringing them together. Like, love at first sight. But it was enjoyable. <laughs>
0: So that was what we thought last week. We'll see if we still think the same or not. So, Tim, um, what do you think stuck with us most about this movie?
1: Well, I did think it was clever. We said in some ways that this is very emblematic of romantic comedy, but it's also subverting some expectations of romantic comedy. The fact that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan aren't together hardly at all in the movie. It's a
0: very interesting structure because it's. We see both of them, but they don't no even meet. They, like, see each other, like, once Yeah, this whole time. And going back to some of the quotes, like, we talk about how the suspense disbelief you need a lot of. But simultaneously, the way it's plotted works. I mean, if you're going to do this story, like, it's very clever yeah. in making the audience. If you're going to buy into it, this movie's going to do everything it can to let you do it. Mm-hmm. One thing I forgot to mention in my history with
1: the movie thing, I did remember that apparently Michael Eisner, when they were planning the Fantasia 2000, the sequence with Noah's Ark, okay. had suggested something with Donald and Daisy Duck where they kept missing each other. That was, he said, it's kind of like in Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. And so I knew that that was going to be an element of this. And it's an, it's an entertaining thing where sometimes they almost see each other. They almost have a connection. And they don't quite yet. And it almost seems like the movie might end before that happens. Mm -hmm. And it definitely plays with your expectations of like, again, the rom-com element of we want to see these two people together and there's lots of indications that they should be together, but how is this feasibly going to actually happen?
0: I guess that what what does well and also, you know, had to subvert is just we go into these sorts of movies. Wanting to get together—that's the entire point. Yeah, but normally there's conflict. There's other things, but there's just them not being able to meet each other. Yeah, just them having their own hangups, either with themselves or with she's engaged to um, Walter, or he's just not certain how to go about dating, or he's he
1: just goes at dating after the first woman he roughly knows kind of about, and yeah. then is in some ways more interested in a fling and before yeah. actual any kind of commitment. Yeah, most romantic comedy, the conflict comes from the two romantic leads and this yeah. time it's not that so they have to find it elsewhere
0: i don't even know him i am having all of these fantasies about some man i have never even met who lives in seattle
1: it rains 9 months of the year in seattle
0: i know i know i do not want to move to seattle but what i really don't want to do is end up always wondering what might have happened and knowing i could have done something and I do think one thing I I think has stuck with me over the since we watched is just I mean, the script is it knows what it's doing. It's clever. Mm-hmm. It does everything it can to make you feel all the right things. Even though like if you look at it from the outside, you're like, wait, this is ridiculous like <laughs> she's kinda stalkerish, like yeah. would this really happen? Like we can get kind of cynical, but it certainly doesn't it'll you know, she can doubt herself and he can say that's ridiculous, but it plays itself very well. And it does help that it has those universal ideas
1: and some themes that, even though in some ways this is very much a 90s movie, yeah, and it's kind of charming in that way. Like
0: the Yo, kid they, has
1: to call his dad through the restaurant phone rather than the cell has phone, these giant
0: line lines they're carrying around with the you know the, the cords, the cords, and there's a fax machine at some point. And, and she she pulls out when she f- visits Seattle, she has to use a map while she's driving, yeah, <laughs>
1: as opposed to, I mean,
0: so much has changed in the air of the smartphone. Oh, uh, she—you know—she goes to inter- search on the internet and it's like this <laughs> painfully just slow typing, like on a Apple iie style <laughs> computer. Yeah, but it worked. Like you don't feel like it's like oh, this is so outdated. You just feel like that's be- the way it was, it, and it becomes kind of like You know, it's like that's just—it's just a different era. Yeah, But it just—it doesn't feel. Antiquated.
1: Yeah, because the ideas are as relevant as ever. It's just in some ways, it's like whether you're watching a movie from 1940s or mm-hmm.
0: 1990s or what have you, like humans are humans. And I guess you got a couple of those main things of like dealing with grief, which is a big one, and how do you get moving again? Yeah. And just like, what am I doing with my life? You know, the, her look for magic, which you say is a whole rom com thing, but it's also just this idea like, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Yeah. Whether you buy the whole, like, there's a faded one out there for you. So that I was mm-hmm. searching for, like, what am I supposed to do Yeah, is universal.
1: And I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be surprised at some of the thoughts about, like, the hesitancy about getting back into the dating mm-hmm. scene. And he's, he's like, what do they expect now? Is this how, still how it works? Like, yeah. it, Some of that kind of conversation I don't think has really changed much.
0: Yeah. And I, 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 it was just interesting. Again, it's pretty much part of the course of Romantic Comedy. They just do it well. That There's a very distinct... Difference between the men and the women, you yeah. know, they, like <laughs> the way the women talk to each other and look at the this movie. Uh-huh. Uh, what's the, what's the movie they reference in all the time? Unfair An to remember, I believe. yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, it's funny that both the men and the women reference a Cary Grant one, but it's a different one. I think the one that the guys reference is Gunga Din. Which yes, I, I keep meaning to look up. Maybe I'll do that here real quick. But, but yeah, that, they,
0: that's enjoyable because like that's part of the the whole confusion battle of the sexes depends on them just being different and i think it's kind of refreshing just to see how much it just kind of how it happens
1: yeah yeah gunga is an is apparently an adventure
0: movie no yeah that sounds all right what do you mean how do you do it you call her up you say come on let's get together we'll look at
1: swatches call her on the phone say come let's look at swatches yeah you know color schemes she's not going to see right through that oh you you don't don't do it like i do it you you do it in your own suave way think carrie grant Cary Grant I think would call Carrie up Grant and
0: say, "Come over
1: and hello. look at my swatches." How do you know? Maybe he did. He didn't. He didn't, a, I, I know he didn't do no it. the movie. movie. I Gunga I, Din. He I, didn't call. call no, up Gunga Din. Din is not a, a, a swatch kind of movie. Well, but who knows what he did in real life? Oh, but he did that with Diane Cannon. Oh yeah, sure. Hello,
0: Diane. Take a look at these swatches.
1: But I think that's the main highlights I had to talk about, Nick. If, unless
0: you had anything else. Not, not really. Go, I mean, go no, those things we enjoyed. I mean, yeah, yeah. Go straight to qu- Yeah. So, Tim, you got a question for me?
1: Yes. So, and
0: this might get a
1: little bit more philosophical yeah, here. Yeah, I think, yeah. That's one where I was kind of holding this back from the highlights because I wanted to ask it
0: here. So, why is fate romantic? That's a good question. Yeah, because I commented after the movie that there's, the movie's almost religious in the sense, uh, in the, its discussion of fate and they mentioned reincarnation and that things, the magic. You know, there's just a lot of like almost religious...
1: Like the world wants things to happen. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's fascinating to me in that it becomes romantic in this scenario where in other stories we're fighting against fate. Like, we don't want this tragedy to happen, but if it's something that we like, then somehow the fact that, like, fate
0: ordained it makes it more romantic? But why? I, I, think, it's, I think it's this idea that that we all, you know, what's the song? You know, you two, like, still haven't found what I'm looking for. That there's this idea that we're incomplete, and somewhere out there is the way to complete ourselves. Uh-huh. And in romantic comedies, the way you complete yourself is finding that perfect other, that second half. And Tom Hanks had that mm. and lost it. And so there's a, a special emphasis on that because, well, then it might be out there again for him. Like, can't one person be happy? You know, Because in some ways, it's just the idea that there's all these—it presents like all these women, men— are searching constantly. They're just kind of mm-hmm. unhappy, vaguely unhappy, and I don't know how why fate pews her and not them. That's that's why it's a movie. That's why it's a setup. Yeah, um, but I think I think in these sort of contexts, though, we have a sense that like almost like love is a if it was Star Wars, it'd be the force. But in this <laughs> case, it's love. It's moving you together. All things bind themselves together in this. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Tom Hanks's character deserves it because he's such a good guy. <laughs> Sam. Tell me what was so special about your wife. Well, how long is your program?
1: Oh, well, it was a a million tiny little things. When you added them all up, they just meant that we were supposed to be together. And I knew it. And I knew it the very first time I touched her. It was like coming home, only to know home I'd ever known. I was just taking her hand
0: to help her out of a car. And I knew it. It was like... Magic. Magic.
1: See, this is what what I was talking about during an earlier period in my life when I was a lonely bachelor. This would have drove me nuts. Yeah, yeah. Because I hated the idea that there was only one perfect person for you, and which meant when you are into your thirties and yeah. you are still single, you are like, "Did I miss it?" Exactly.
0: Yeah, did I miss that person and, that was supposed to be mine? And I think, I think, see, that's the that's the two edged sword of these sort of movies. Because on one hand, I think everyone likes, even most people like the idea of like finding the person you will be happy with. Like that's everyone wants to be happy. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to find someone that's just going to work. Yeah, but like real life is not like that. I don't think, and from our Christian point of view, it's I don't think there is just one you know, sort of soulmate sort of thing.
1: Unless you're a hardcore
0: Calvinist, I suppose. Well, okay, but it's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was reading, actually just this morning, Screwtape Letters, okay, right? mm-hmm. And there's a whole section about how they've convinced them into love at first sight and not marriage as being this thing about loyalty and devotion, and All you know. And this movie plays into that kind of...
1: Mm. The instant connection. The like, instant
0: connection, and that's the only thing worth... That's what you're looking for. If you don't find that... You can break anything else. You're, you're missing something. You're missing yeah. something, that constant searching. Uh-huh. So yeah, I don't know why we do that. I think we... I'm going to go to my... This is a random theory. I think it is religious in many ways for a lot of people. Like that's their... That's how I complete my... That's how I... We're broken. We need something. And I think the religious impulse saying something's wrong with me, how do I fix it? You know, Christianity would say, hey, you're sinful, you need forgiven. I think there's a general romantic sense that says, you just need to find the right person and then mm. to be happy, that person. And I think we want, and then we can bring fate into it because then it's, that's what religion does, you know? Mm, mm. You know, it's something outside of yourself that makes it happen. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting concept. and It just seemed more overt in this one than like your Sandra Bullock comedies, which are more just like, almost like uh, satires on men and women. Yeah. It's interesting,
1: because, like, on the one hand, it's kind of neat to have that kind of, to showcase that kind of spiritual longing yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, and that's a good thing, the the, the longing. The longing, yeah, the longing is a good thing. In some ways, the downside is, is it's putting that search for questions, is finding the answers in maybe not quite the right
0: place. Yeah, and in a non-movie, a person's not going to be able to bear that burden. Yeah. But I think people like to think about it, because it's, it's an aspirational thing, you know, like wouldn't just be nice? Someone would just get me. There's all these little things that just, mm-hmm. we just... Just connect. We just, yes. We just grok we, each other. We
1: we fit in together like... Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Well, what's, your, what's your question? It's
0: so all in the same... You hit my, that was close to my philosophical point of view. So here's slightly different, but the same. It seemed to me watching it that Annie, the female protagonist, we don't really know much about her. Mm. Her entire personality is wanting... The magic. Uh-huh. Why does it work that we don't really have a... She's not a character. Or is that is that being too harsh? I'm not sure. I'm exaggerating it to a certain extent.
1: Yeah. I mean, Meg Ryan just imbues
0: a lot of personality in Annie. That's true. I mean... Other people might not be pull off well. Meg Ryan does a fabulous job.
1: She she does. She has that like kind of searching. Like you feel like you instantly know her a little bit, even though you don't know a lot about her. We don't know was she born in Baltimore? Is what drove her to become a reporter? I mean, there's a lot of things that you could read into it. But most of what we see her spend her time looking for is just this vague. Like I'm not quite sure this is where I should be, and I'm kind of fascinated by this other guy. And
0: do you think just she's just the Every woman that that people just imprint themselves on her, I think that's
1: certainly possible. And I think there's, hmm, I'm on thin ice here and trying to make a, an assumption about a lot of women in okay. general here. Warning, uh, guys. But I uh, <laughs> I will try and uh, with a caveat that please take this with a grain of salt. But I do think that there the every womanness of Annie is the fascination with. An idea of some okay. sort, the, you know, the longing after your pinup movie star. I mean, yeah. when guys long after a movie star, they usually have something a little different in mind <laughs> than when girls have a picture of Johnny Depp yep. on their, on or, their Orlando wall. With or Orlando my sisters, Bloom or Orlando Bloom. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's just a little different. There's an idea. There's they're fascinating with the idea of someone rather than just pure body. Yeah, I, I suspect. I kind of feel like that. There's a little bit of that going on with her, and that's something that. I imagine a lot of women can identify with. So yeah, and in, in some ways, I do think that Tom Hanks was really instrumental in giving his character more depth. In some ways, yeah,
0: and yeah, he has a decent amount of person, he has a job and a location and a son and uh, things he struggles with outside of simply find this person.
1: Yeah, apparently, in like an early version of the script he at one time was going to break off his date with the one other girl because he didn't want to hurt his son's feelings. And Tom was like, now this guy is, hasn't gotten laid for over a year. He's going to go out on this date. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a secular guy's
0: perspective on this, this matter, but uh, it's, it, it does make him more well-rounded and you know, whether you like it or not, it makes him a complicated, like you, Mm-hmm. He's both like a good dad and a bad dad simultaneously. Yeah, when you watch it, he's flawed. He, yeah, he,
1: he, he like he wants to be a good dad for his son, but he cer- certainly like is immature in certain ways. Yes, so that's probably the main flaw in the the imbalance of their characterization in some ways. Like, but somehow it works in the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a, somehow it somehow still still works. Yeah, because Meg Ryan doesn't
0: have quite someone as close that she can bounce off of as no, because like her girlfriend almost has more personality in some ways than. I think that's a little harsh. No, I don't mean normal. I guess more. Um, I mean she's the comedic sidekick. Don't get yeah, me wrong. Yeah, yeah. So there's my answer. Okay,
1: <laughs> very complicated answer, but I, I think she just works somehow, and I think Meg Ryan's charisma has a lot to do with that. That's that's true.
0: And then suddenly, for no reason at all, he starts to talk about how much he loved his wife and how he just fell in love with her, like he was one of those cows in Michigan. What cows in Michigan? It was on 60 Minutes, there were those cows that got zapped by stray voltage, no one knows why. And maybe it was Wisconsin. But anyway, I was listening to him talk about how much he loved his wife, and suddenly I was crying. It's like what happens when I watch those phone company ads. I don't have to see the whole thing, just the part where the daughter gives the mother the refrigerator with a big red, red bow, bow on it. yes, the Polaroid commercial. Two five-year-olds at their grandfather's <gasps> birthday party. They're making the album. Oh, with all the glow That kills me. <laughs> All right, you got a silly question for me? Yes, although this
1: uh, this question might be a double-edged blade. Ooh, let's but do it. So what is your wife's favorite romantic movie or story? Oh. Because mm. they talk a lot about An Unfair to Remember. You know, This is a romantic movie that talks a little bit about romantic movies. Does, yes, Does yes. she have a
0: favorite, do you think? Yes, but I can't think of it on this spot. <laughs> <laughs> we may have to pause. Wait, give me a second. Um. I'm gonna rub and Ask her. <laughs> okay, hang on a second. And he he like goes to the bedroom, and he looks, and he comes out, and he looks at her, and he kind of just they know, and then they hug, and it's oh
1: God. that's a chick's movie. I would say so. Well, I'm not looking for a mail order bride. Oh. I'm I just want somebody that I can have a decent conversation with over dinner, you know, without it falling down into weepy tears over some movie <laughs> that, that you just saw. very emotional. Although I cried at the end of the Dirty Dozen. Well, who didn't? Because Jim Brown was throwing these hand grenades down these air air shafts and Richard Jekyll and Lee Marvin were sitting on top of this armored <gasps> personnel carrier that dressed up like Nazis, and <laughs> oh. Trini Lopez, <laughs> Treaty <Trini>. Lopez, <laughs> he busted his neck when they were parachuting down the a Nazi life. Okay, folks, we cheated on this one. Yeah, we had to
0: go ask our wives. And luckily for all us, they didn't just berate it. They're like, yeah, I'm not sure. So, yes. Yeah, so there's that. For uh, Natasha, Pride and Prejudice, and most Jane Austen, but that one especially. We have several copies of various versions. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed Pride and Prejudice myself. I mean, that whole uh, Miss Darcy thing's pretty great. I went ahead and asked Janelle as well. And
1: she said Jane Eyre, which... And she she also admitted she's not a big fan of chick flicks. That's her words, not mine. Yeah. She really prefers the romances that are more about deepening the relationship mm-hmm. and building stuff. Although she also said that she cried at uh, the romantic song in the Disney animated Robin Hood. So, when she was a kid. Nice, so, nice. Fair enough. The flip side of this, I remember, Nick, a very early conversation we had yes. And uh In Schultz Hall, I think during uh, Christmas or something, just geeking out about Star Wars: A New Hope. Oh, I just remember talking about that as if like we had just seen an awesome, even though we had both seen it a long time ago. But But it's always good. It's always good. It's always good. Good. That Death Star run is just amazing. It
0: is actually that I can't. Yeah, it's mm, chef kiss. Mm pure cinematic the, beauty the the editing on that thing and the music and yeah the, the timing yeah absolutely And the pod race um <laughs> okay, okay. i anyway. love that pod race man okay um all right tim give me just a thumbnail sketch we need an epilogue for walter all right walters are <laughs> sad boring but pretty good guy like who even- has a lot of allergies apparently But, like, that's really his only thing. Like, he's a good guy. I mean, it's kind of...
1: Yeah. If you've forgotten, he's the guy that...
0: (laughs) That's the thing. You forgot him.
1: The person that Annie was engaged to. And then she might break it off because she's uh, afraid about the magic. So, sequel to him. Um, Or an
0: epilogue. It can just be a short little, like, the new man alone.
1: Okay. Heartbroken after having lost his fiance, he calls a certain radio show. (laughs) And people are so the women are so feel so, so bad for him, he has to start feeling letters and meets he meets someone on top of the space needle in Seattle. Okay. But he didn't live in Seattle, he lives in Washington, doesn't he? Exactly. He has his own he has his own cross country oh, romance. So oh, okay.
0: He has to go to Seattle, right? So he than... he's weeping in Washington. <laughs> or is it Baltimore? I it's think it's Baltimore. Baltimore so he does work in Washington.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of um, what, what, what uh, his thing is uh, Abandoned in Baltimore Abandoned in Baltimore <laughs> that's, that's the sequel There you go Alright, very
0: nice Love is the answer Someone to love is the answer Once you found her Built your world around her Alright, Tim So here's the real question Did we like the movie? Overall, yes. I don't think this is a
1: masterpiece by any means. I, like I said, I think there's a reason why it's not in my sister's and mom's rotation of chick flicks so that they, they do enjoy watching. It definitely has some clever moments to it, but if I feel like if you can't quite identify with the worldview of this one, and if, if you're being a little bit more realistic on like a Christian yeah. level, you're not going to fall in love with this movie as much.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I loved it, but... I thought, just as a movie, it was enjoyable, and it was mm-hmm. clever, and... Good dialogue. And I, So, with the general caveat of it is what it is, yeah, I enjoyed it. Fair so, enough. So, what do you think? Do, would we recommend this to anyone, or just select audiences?
1: Select audiences, to a certain extent. Like, again, if you're into rom-coms, if you're into chick flicks... Or,
0: or even if you just... I think even if you just want to kind of get the feel... I mean, it is kind of an icon... It's a... I don't know. It's not as... um. Seminal as say when Harry met Sally, I guess, but it, it kind of has a it has a, a certain a play, a place in its in the development of the romantic comedy.
1: Yeah, and in some ways, it may be a little bit more accessible than when Harry met Sally because that one is, I think, rated R for like some sexual conversations mm-hmm. and Meg Ryan fakes an orgasm at some point for
0: comedic effect. Yeah, this one's pretty relatively clean. It's very yeah, it's it pretty just, clean. It's kind of a nineties PG.
1: Mm-hmm. There's talk of sleeping around and that yeah. kind of stuff. Which is unfortunate from a Christian perspective. But yeah, it's not a bad example of the genre, although I might recommend even something, a cinder bullock, like while yeah. you were sleeping over this one. That's true.
0: That's true. All right. So there's our, I guess, qualified probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, 1993. We are getting closer to the, the present here. Um, next week, speaking of presents, next week is, uh, <laughs> that didn't even mean that. It's 2003 and we're watching Elf. That's right, because
1: I had not seen it. So that's why we had to nominate it. I'm, I'm the only one out of our normal viewing audience who hadn't seen Elf.
0: And again, it's, it's one of those movies that is big enough on the kind of people watch list that we have to cover it here yeah
1: if we have if something that's that big that someone hasn't seen well let's finally watch this Yeah, exactly
0: all right <laughs> so thank you for listening visit us at your real Trains of thought.com see us on facebook and whatever twitter is now um etc until next time this has been nick and this is tim bye-bye bye-bye